The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Aditya Chakravorty. Coming up this week, we have eminent historian Neil Ferguson in the pod to discuss his hefty new biography of the German banker Sigmund Warburg. He tells us why Warburg's successes in the city could learn from his brand of hair shirt morality. He was probably the most important figure in post-45 London. He, he was the guy who really revived London as a financial centre. You have to remember it was dead as a doornail in 1945 and not just because the Luftwaffe had bombed it flat. But first we're joined by Sukdev Johal from the School of Management at Royal Holloway College at London University and by The Guardian's economics correspondent Philip Hinman who's just hot-footed it over from Westminster where he's been watching Sir Alan Budd give evidence to the Treasury Select Committee. I can say personally the events of the past few weeks have been uh, personally very very painful indeed, but I don't complain about that. Um, I volunteered for the job, and we all know what happened to the uh, young lady of Riga, so, so I don't complain about that. But I would be deeply sorry if any of the mud that has been thrown at me stuck uh, to the OBR, because I do believe it's a brilliant and courageous innovation. We'll come back um, in due course to discuss that. But that, to me, would be a real pity. <laughs> I can't imagine a more uh, controversial first hearing for the Treasury Select Committee than see the man who was in charge of this new quango who's now leaving within just a few weeks of it being given independence. What was it like? Well, it's amazing, really, isn't it? It was supposed to be desperately dull as an organisation. Uh, it was designed to be, the obviously, the, the uh, chairman of it, uh, Salam Bud. Uh, he told the committee that was his view of how it should be. Um, but the idea that it was ever going to be dull when in the middle of one of the worst crises since the 1930s that he could come up with forecasting and and a judgment on you know the, the uh, Treasury's figures and it not be controversial was just bizarre. And of course, he'd made the situation worse by um, bringing forward documents that were part of the jobs forecast, which, you know, were obviously political to everybody, you know, and were declared to be naive by the committee and he kind of apologised for being naive but it was you know a scandal really. And in that room in that give us some sense of what it's like in that committee room you had for the first time ele- MPs who were elected onto the Treasury Select Committee and they were facing uh, quite a big guy the head of this new Office of Budget Responsibility who's now going in the circumstances you described what were the key moments what was it like? Well, I don't think you would have taken it from the committee that um that really they'd only been elected last night um, and here they were just a few hours later um, having to th- in front of the cameras probe somebody who's a very very experienced civil servant academic been around a long time and obviously implementing a key policy for George Osborne um, I thought that they asked uh, very intelligent questions I thought they were very uh, open they weren't grandstanding they weren't looking to make score political points but they were trying to draw him out in how possibly he came up with these heroic forecasts for growth heroic forecasts for jobs growth you know um, and uh, and all the kind of machinations behind the scenes and trying to pin him down on who said what to whom when Sukdev at The Guardian, this has been one of our big stories in the economics and editorial comment pages for the past few weeks. What what do you, as, a, as an academic from outside the, 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 the hot the hot breath world of Westminster, make of it? Well, I think it's kind of a pretty interesting kind of 
set of circumstances that have arisen. Um, I'm, I'm trying to still work out what the OBR's function actually is. What is it supposed to do? Um, is it about kind of, you know, just the growth? Is it about number of jobs? What is its kind of definition? What's its terms of reference? Um, the other thing that kind of struck me was it was to make um, forecasting independent. Independent from what? Um, from political scrutiny? From democratic scrutiny? Um, that's the kind of the puzzle of this is that um, politicians have become adept at putting these people in place, intermediaries, who become the fall guys when things don't quite go right. Um, certainly in terms of the cuts, what you've got is Alan Budd would stand in the middle rather than Osborne getting a pasting. Um, and what has happened today, as, as Philip has just shown, is that Budd was shown to be not only naive, but he's ended up as the fall guy for Osborne's kind of you know, claims. Um, where you go from here is a pretty interesting kind of, uh, uh, kind of set of propositions because um, forecasting has historically been off the mark. I think, Philip, you told me earlier that kind of, you know, uh, 90% of those were kind of, you know, off the mark. Um, um, you know, what function does this OBR actually take in the whole system? But, Sukhdev, just to, just to pick you up on that, you're, you, you're absolutely right. It's a it's a fundamentally a political job. But the reason why George Osborne felt he needed to create this Office for Budget Responsibility, the OBR, as we now call it, is because he uh, felt that too often in the past... Treasury forecasts had been improved by ministers or special advisors for their own purposes. And there are lots and lots of stories of the previous administration where Treasury civil servants would come in with their numbers and someone connected to the ministerial team would say, I think we can do a bit better than that. Yeah. Um, my answer to that is, uh, do you think Alan Budd's office doesn't have different versions and how many heroic assumptions had been made? To get to was it two point three or two point six growth? Um, this huge specialism and it's pretty demeaning to the British civil service, particularly the Treasury. The skills are all there. Um, I were really saying that they don't have the skills to do this, or they can't co-opt people to come in and support their activity. This is kind of it was a political appointment, and Alan Budd, he's hugely credentialised. There's no criticism in in that respect, um, but numbers are not neutral. They have politics and political economy embedded in them. It's also a myth to say that uh, Treasury was also wrong. I mean, we went year in, year out saying that Gordon Brown had these amazing growth figures and the city economists were telling us they were completely wrong. It was totally exaggerated. And most of the time they came out the, right. The growth figures are right, but the, the, debt, the, the tax figures were often wrong. Well, they were, they were sometimes wrong. But the problem was the golden rule was manipulated. Other things were manipulated, but they're not changing. They're still within the Treasury. The Treasury can still make up its mind about what is investment in the economy and what is consumption. All those sorts of things are still the sort of things that the Treasury can decide. Some of the, some of the big uh, controversy around uh, Sir Alan Budden wasn't just about his independence. It was about the nature of the forecasts he, he was coming up with, which were far more optimistic than a lot of people outside government thought was tenable. Did we get some sense of how we arrived at those forecasts? Well, one of the... We didn't, know, And I think it's another thing that he did um, apologise for at the committee, which was that he hadn't explained a lot. And, of course, the fact that he hadn't explained them all went to fuel our fear that he had been rushed into putting them out. Now, obviously, that's that's harsh on Sir Alan, and we've we've directed all our fire at Osborne. We've said this is Osborne putting Bud in this position. To be the full guy. To be the full guy. The, the Osborne has constructed a, a situation which 
has or Bud taking all this flack. And we've had uh, Osborne's people on the phone berating us and telling us this is terrible and uh, we shouldn't be taking it. It's all the OBR is a independent body. But obviously we've shown that not to be the case as well, which is why they're saying it will be independent in the future. Uh, and final thing, when are they going to appoint this new chair? I mean, they'd better get a move on, wouldn't they? Well, we've asked them that and it doesn't look like they are going to have someone in place for the um, spending review. So they are going to go ahead with cutting and slashing without this They're not going to have someone in place for the comprehensive spending review. So no, the big, it doesn't the, appear the big, to be. The biggest announcement by George Osborne for the next five years won't have a head of the... Well, it's OB. all part of the sophisticated planning behind it, isn't it? That you have an interim chair who you don't know is an interim chair, so you don't put any succession planning in place. So when they surprise you by resigning except they told you three months before they would, um, you have no idea how you're going to replace them. I mean, it's all balmy. You know, they, they, they want to have it always. Either he was always going to be an interim chair, in which case you had an idea of how to success, uh, put in a succession plan, or you didn't know, in which case there's an explanation of why there's such a big gap. Well, one of the departments at the sharp end of the government's big cuts in public spending is higher education, which falls into Vince Cable's Department for Business, Innovation and Skills. Sukdev, Vince is meant to give a speech this Thursday in which he sets out the, the roadmap for universities and he explains how on earth they're going to make these 33% cuts in their budgets. What does 33% cuts mean on a university campus? It means job losses. Simply job losses. Um, to give you an example of this, how much of the university's total funding comes from the state? Well, 35% of that funding comes for the teaching grant um, and another 16% comes from research grants. So it's about kind of 50% comes from the state. Um, and that's hit, across all universities? That's, acro- that's the average. Um, obviously, it's different across different universities because some are strong in teaching, some are strong on research. Um, but whichever way you look at it, on average, 50% of the total funding in of the $25 billion that's uh, income for the universities comes from the state. Now, um, in my estimation, you're really looking at about $12.5 million is 50% of that, um, perhaps about $6, million, $6 billion, sorry, of, of cuts. Now, that must equal job cuts because the surplus that's generated on the total income in any year is only 1.3% for universities. What kind of job cuts are we talking about? Is it just a few lecturers of each department or are we talking about entire faculties now being closed? Um, this really does depend on where the cuts fall. If the cuts are going to fall on the teaching grant, then evidently those institutions that are more research inten- uh, teaching intensive will suffer cuts. And these will be real deep cuts simply because after you've paid for all your purchases, most of the value that's added that's left as value added, goes to predominantly academic, academic labour. There's about 100 and I think 180,000 academics in the UK entirely. Um, and if you're looking after purchases, you could say the average salary is about, what, 30, 32, 35,000? Divide that by the billion. You can roughly work out how many jobs would have to go, unless we find new sources of income. Such as? Maybe international income. Um, what, you mean for more foreign students? More foreign students. Or you may decide that um, 163 universities can no longer be supported um, and you decide to close some down. Um, there's form here. Um, 
in the 80s, in the Thatcher cuts, it was Aston and Salford that was asked to fall on the sword. What, to shut themselves down? Um, to reduce their size. Um, on this occasion, the cuts are much deeper. Um, so we're really looking, I mean, we don't know how it's going to play, um, but the, sh- the shape of the whole system will change because you cannot go through six billion worth of cuts if that indeed ends up as the ultimate figure without kind of damaging the whole system. And if you were a betting man, what would you think Vince Cable's plan for universities will consist of? You've given some hints of it there, but what would you say a joined-up policy for Vince Cable, who's a Gladstonian balanced-budget liberal, what do you think he's going to go for? Um, Well... It's very difficult to say because universities, what you want universities to do, have changed form. In the 60s, Robin said, if you, add, if, you, if you grow the number of universities, because graduates earn more, economic growth is higher. And that's been carried on right up until Deering. I'm not sure what they want from universities now. Um, it's clearly, kind of Willits has already indicated uh, that uh, um, some universities should have a kind of a, a set curriculum. And that curriculum is, is, is distributed to, I don't know, all universities, some universities, not quite sure. But really, you're probably looking at kind of a demotion of some institutions to perhaps community colleges, because that's the kind of the logic if you follow that. Um, but as Philip said, I mean, you know, we don't know until the public spending kind of review and we just don't know how the cuts are going to be in play. But there is a body in place HEFSI and the grants. What's HEFSI? Uh, the Higher Education Funding Council for England uh, and Wales. Um, what will tend to happen there is they will interpret. They will be told what their budget is and then they will be interpreting how the cuts are to take place and what they're going to reduce. Um, so um, interesting times. I think um, edu- higher education may make the front page of The Guardian occasionally. I think Cable's going to be acutely aware, though, that simply having tutor time where you have a sign a contract as some universities are doing where you you sign a contract that says you agree to only having half an hour tutorial time a term that kind of thing that that is just not going to go down well with the voters you know if that's the way it pans out five years from now you know his party is really keen on higher education and if that's the route he goes down then he'll be punished for it Obviously, he's going to get punished for all kinds of other things uh, as Liberal Democrats, but but that would be another another thing, stick to beat them with. So but, I think he's going to want to be more imaginative than that. But there's, there's already built-in stabilise in the university system. Let me give you an example. Only 65% of all academics employed are actually full-time and on permanent contracts. So there's already a, a cohort that's part-time and can be fixed contracts. Yes, yeah. um, and often there's no redundancy there. Um, so there are these built-in stabilisers already in there. I mean, if you look at kind of back to Thatcher, the way they got universities to take more students was to reduce the, the amount each student uh, uh, funding that was attached to each student. So you halved it, but doubled the number of students. So there was growth. So there are built-in stabilisers, but ultimately um, it, some kind of creativity is required. But um, we can safely say that 163 universities as they stand now cannot survive um, the level of cuts. So we're going to see cuts in the number of universities that are around, demotions in the state of some universities. Um, I'd be surprised if there wasn't. Yeah. 
and and Phil, just to come back to to you. So we've got the kind of the the kind of the producer interest as represented by Sukdev, but you're quite right to bring kind of consumer uh, lobby groups because this principle that was most clearly enunciated by Tony Blair when he said that fifty percent of students ought to go into university. Well, going by what Sukdev just said, that's for the birds, isn't it? Well, it is if if my own completely unscientific experience is anything to go by, which is I have a my eldest coming up to university age and increasingly people debating what is the point of particularly of going going to university particularly and I think you see this in the states as well if you're going to do what is generally considered by employers to be a peripheral subject you know not a high-flown subject um, and at a and at an institution which doesn't have a great reputation, why come out with thirty grand's worth of debt and a piece of paper in your hand that's not worth very much? You know, they, people are becoming acutely aware of the debt issue as a student, and therefore being much more concerned about what they get for their money. And uh, their parents are too, because obviously their parents are being asked to dip into their pocket, you know, to, to uh, lower the debt. So I think that's, that is something that all this goes to heighten, you know, people are much more acutely aware. And, and to some extent, that's probably a good thing. Everybody just drifting into university for no particular reason and drifting out again, isn't it was never a great idea. People should be aware of what they're going into it for. And, um, you know, I think it's part of a whole, you know, post-war baby boomer, you know, you educate yourself for 30 years, you maybe work for 20 and then you retire for another 40 years and you have a great life. And in fact, all of that's totally unaffordable and um, all has to be rewritten. So the final question to you. Um, we're always hearing from government that universities should be the hotbed of new ideas that are going to create a glorious new industrial future for Britain. But we're going to have, uh, I'm pretty sure, we're going to have consumers in the form of students having to pay more for their fees. We're also going to have big cuts in uh, university budgets that they can spend on teachers and the like. What does that mean for the future of the university? Um, it's kind of these big vision kind of questions, Aditya, and it's very difficult to say what the sector will look like. Um, but I suspect that kind of there will be some kind of coordination in terms of the cuts. So, for example... Um, in, in the Thatcher period, we really had kind of, you know, university management left to its own devices to close down chemistry departments or engineering departments. So regionally, we had no engineering or chemistry in particular areas. So there may be more coordination here. But in terms of what the university will look like, I mean, certainly um, the consumer interest, the students are more vociferous and more demanding than they've ever been. Um, But you've also got this kind of case of the state deciding that 50% is probably too many to go to a fully funded higher education system. What they're probably going to look for is a more kind of of a graduated kind of stepping stones to to degrees. Um, But what I kind of fear and the greatest fear is that in those cuts, we cut kind of those class leading research centres. They get cut as well, because when you're slashing the budgets you tend to kind of slash on a wholesale scale rather than just in a piecemeal way and that's the kind of the greatest fear is how it's done the 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 sector will look different um perhaps kind of the roles in terms of how you get tenure um uh, so the role of kind of you know the, the 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 pathway to becoming an academic will change um but there's already been in terms of kind of pay cuts historically um academic pay has lagged inflation anyway so there's been kind of reductions there anyway Um, 
But in terms of kind of what the new, you know, the, the new kind of post kind of Cameron university will look like, it will probably look like much like the same, but there may be fewer of them. Okay, well, let's leave universities for now and turn to a man who's been creating waves with his criticisms of the way history has been taught in secondary schools. Neil Ferguson, author of such weighty tomes as Empire and the Ascent of Money, has turned his attention to the German banker Sigmund Warburg for his latest work. When he came into the Guardian's offices, I asked him why he'd chosen to focus on this relatively obscure figure. It seems to me that historians should try to operate at different altitudes, and sometimes with the ascent of money, uh, it helped to see financial history as a whole from the very beginnings to the present. With this book, I wanted to dive down and, uh, and really focus on financial history through the eyes of one man. And Siegmund Warburg is, well, I don't think he's an obscure figure, at least not from the vantage point of the history of the City of London, because he was probably the most important figure in post-45 London. He, he was the guy who really revived London as a financial centre. You have to remember, it was dead as a doornail in 1945, and not just because the Luftwaffe had bombed it flat. It was pretty much out of business. And Siegmund, who was this dynamic, driven figure, refugee from Hitler's Germany, shook the place up. Hostile takeovers, euro bonds, he even changed the way banks were managed internally. Uh, and I think it's a wonderful way of, of seeing the 20th century. You go from his birth in 1902 to his death in 1982, you take in all the major crises, including, of course, the Great Depression, but also the great stagflation of the 1970s. I find that really, really interesting to write about. So I think this is a wonderful way for me to get back to my roots as a financial historian. It's a documents-driven book, piles of dusty letters. And, uh, and it's also a way of illuminating some of the key issues of our time. It's a very admiring biography. What does Warburg have that... Fred Goodwin doesn't. Well, I should be careful how I answer that. I think the most important difference between Warburg and today's bankers is that he had instilled in him from early childhood a very austere ethical worldview. His mother would say to him at, at night, as they were saying prayers, if you, if you can't think of at least three things you've done wrong in the course of today, at least three errors or omissions, then you're not thinking hard enough. So he was very self-critical and I think held to a very high moral standard by the way he'd been raised. But the other big difference that comes to mind is what he'd lived through. The generation of bankers who presided over financial disaster on both sides of the Atlantic had, on average, come into the business in 1982. Uh, and, uh, you know, they'd had 25 years, and then they blew the world up. They had had no experience of the Depression. They'd certainly not experienced hyperinflation. I mean, Warburg had seen military defeat in 1918, hyperinflation in 1923, banking crisis in 1931 in the midst of the Great Depression, and the rise of Hitler. Then the outbreak of World War II. He'd seen enough to be quite a cautious man. Uh, This is the thing that I really want to steer you towards, because you seem to be making an argument in this book that what's missing from modern banking is kind of pride in banking as a as a craft you know there's a craft side to, to banking and also that there's something missing from modern banking so what, what do you think that is warburg in i think it was 1953 drew up five principles of high finance haute banque he liked to talk in terms of high banking and number one is moral standing and this whole idea of reputation moral integrity is really the starting point for his vision. He also thinks of 
of finance of, uh, is essentially a matter of relationships. It's about the psychology of, of the client, who's almost like the, the banker's patient. He calls himself a financial physician. And all of this is in stark contrast to the ethos of finance in the time since he died, because since he died, relationship banking essentially gave way to transactions banking. You pile them high, you sell them cheap, or you sell them dear if you can. And the traders took over. For Warburg, the traders were a kind of lower class of financiers. The speculators were really kind of the scum of the earth. Uh, as far as he was concerned, banking was about something quite different. It was more an advisory business, and it was a business based on trust. He would have been utterly appalled by the way things developed in the years after his death. And I think he wouldn't have been at all surprised that it ended in another meltdown, because for him, this had been tried before. The transaction model had been the model of the 1920s. He was in the US in the 20s, in, in New York and in Boston. He saw, he saw the bubble at first hand. A lot of what he concluded about finance was based on harsh experience. And unfortunately, because we don't learn from financial history, which is why you can refer to him as an obscure figure, because we've kind of forgotten he ever existed, we just keep on making the same mistakes. So... Is this is this what went wrong in the financial in the run up to the financial crisis that, that bankers forgot about that they were actually dealing with real people and they were lending money to real people and they were selling it on to other real bankers and real traders? Well, the relationship certainly got so sliced up that whoever originated a mortgage in Arizona immediately sold it on to you know smart guy bank and smart guy bank then would bundle it up with a whole bunch of other mortgages slice and dice it turn turn this into a bunch of asset-backed securities. They would then sell the asset-backed securities to Mug Landesbank in Germany, and Mug Landesbank, if they had any sense, would then hand it or sell it on to some kind of Norwegian municipality. And by the time you finally trace this debt uh, from the debtor to the creditor, it's gone through about five permutations. There's no relationship banking there. In fact, it's almost the opposite of relationship banking because nobody knows who, in fact, originated the loan in the first place. And certainly the people in Norway have no clue as to the probability that the people with the mortgage in Arizona will default. So I think that's part of, of what changed. But, you know, I think there was also something more subtle, which you get when you look at oh, I don't know, the emails of dear old Fab Fabrice Tour, the Goldman Sachs trader who's who's been exposed and, and in many ways exemplifies the spirit of, of the age with his sort of weird franglais view of what it means to sell CDO squared ABS to Belgian widows and orphans. I'm not even going to bother to translate CDO squared ABS. And, uh, and who says, you know, I don't really understand these products entirely, but don't worry, you know, I'm, I'm doing something morally good because I'm helping the American consumer get ever more leveraged. So I don't feel too guilty. I mean, this is a completely different moral universe from the one Sigmund Warburg inhabited. I mean, even the language has changed. So, so at Goldman Sachs, they don't have clients anymore. They have counterparties. Uh, and I think that means you're allowed to screw the counterparties with a clear conscience. At least that appears to be the essence of the famous abacus trade. Isn't this an Oxford academic or former Oxford academic coming on a bit like Charles Ryder decrying the hooper of his age? Because this is modern capitalism, isn't it? We outsource, we offshore. We don't have relationships with our call centre in Delhi or uh, our service engineer in, in Shanghai. Well, I ain't no Oxford academic these days. I'm a Harvard Business School professor, among other things. And, and part of what I have to do is to try to understand how modern capitalism works and doesn't work. Because we absolutely have to acknowledge that there was a breakdown 
in the global financial system beginning in 2007. It isn't over. Uh, we still really don't know about the solvency of a whole bunch of European banks that are about to be, sub- be subjected to a stress test. And I do think that part of what caused the crisis, aside from ignorance of financial history, uh, has been this excessive uh, disintermediation, this breakup of relationships. Because once you cease to have a human relationship, then the moral, I suppose, constraints on behavior are gone. I mean, it's just another transaction. It's just another deal. Sorry, you lost. No cigar. Next. And I think that ethos, which is, I suppose, I I suppose it first became visible to the general public in the famous Gordon Gecko character uh, in Oliver Stone's original movie, Wall Street. Greed is good, uh, you know, asset strip, screw the workers, screw the clients, that that whole ethos uh, through Enron, through LTCM, long-term capital management, right the way through to the blow-up of 2007-2008. I mean, that's that's the ethos we have to curb. And I, I passionately believe in capitalism. I'm sure it will come as no surprise uh, to The Guardian that that's the case. But I'm not somebody who's naive about it and idealizes it. Uh, you don't need to read terribly far in Adam Smith to know that markets can fail and that there can be conspiracies against the public. And the big challenge to anybody who's serious about the market, the free market, is to make sure that it is constrained by moral values. And that, I think, is why the Sigmund Wahlberg story is so interesting, because he saw that and he practiced what he preached. You're, so you're a famous conservative, uh, but now you're talking about market failures and how neoliberalism can, can, can end up destroying itself. Why don't you come and just work for The Guardian? <laughs> well, I, I should say that long ago in an article in the Financial Times, I, I said I was actually something of a Marxist just on the side of the bourgeoisie. So it's not like you just rumbled me here. I've been trying to explain to people for years that I'm not really a conservative at all. I'm a liberal fundamentalist. I was attracted to Thatcherism by the fact that she believed in the free market, individual responsibility. She was against socialism. I'm against socialism. She was against the planned economy. I'm against that. She was against the Soviet Union. I was against that. So I suppose the label conservative and especially the label Tory is quite misleading. And it's even more misleading when you get to the United States, uh, because to be a conservative there is to stand for a whole bundle of moral and religious uh, and social attitudes that I simply don't have. So, you know, I prefer to think of myself as a a liberal fundamentalist or an enlightenment fundamentalist. Uh, The big influences on me as a as I grew up, uh, were Adam Smith, uh, uh, John Stuart Mill. You know, I'm not really a Disraelian Tory. I'm not even sure I'm much of a Cameronian Tory. But let's face it, uh, what are the alternatives? If you're serious about the free market and, above all, if you believe in individual freedom, intellectual freedom as well as economic freedom, then for the last uh, 30, 40, 50 years, uh, for my lifetime, you really haven't had much choice. The Conservatives have been far and away closer, closest to those values of any British political party. What does a visiting professor from Harvard Business School make of our new Conservative-led government? It's a massive improvement. I thought we wasted 13 years with a branding exercise, the, the whole fraud of New Labour. And what frustrated me about that period and ultimately made me leave uh, Britain was the sense that what had been achieved in the 1980s, which was a lot, was just being frittered away. And very little scrutiny uh, was applied to Gordon Brown uh, when he was Chancellor. And I think that's partly because of the almost complete 
um, ignorance within the chattering classes of, of economic issues. I mean, they just don't, didn't seem to notice that the Br- British productivity was, was stagnating, that the growth in employment was increasingly in the public sector, that the problems in the public sector, the inefficiencies, weren't being addressed. In fact, they were being magnified. And so after 13 wasted years, phew, we have a chance actually to start over and try to regain some of the reforming momentum that was there after 1979. But in some ways, it's a harder task now. I mean, what daunts me when I consider George Osborne's predicament is that I actually think he's got a tougher assignment than Geoffrey Howe did as the first Thatcher Chancellor. Why? It's Well, because the public finances of Britain are in such a dire mess. I mean, 10, 11% of GDP deficit, that's way bigger than back in the 1970s. And in the 1970s, the, the pressure in some ways was taken off the fiscal position by inflation. So, yeah, the debt was huge, but inflation was kind of eating it away. And you were actually paying negative real interest rates uh, on the public debt. Right now, we have a problem that uh, the debt is exploding, has been exploding. And, uh, and inflation is actually uh, shifting down close towards potentially zero in the United States, probably not quite there here. That makes it more difficult. So to go um, hell for leather at the public sector and, uh, and try to achieve cuts of between 25 and even 40% once you've ring-fenced the National Health Service, which I think was a mistake, is a big ask, as they say in the United States. It's a big ask, and it's going to elicit, of course, very predictable uh, resistance from the public sector unions who are very good at portraying their own I think, quite narrow self-interest as the general interest. So we're in for a pretty turbulent time here. But I'm definitely on the side of of the government. I think it's great that we so quickly put together uh, what seems like a very smoothly functioning coalition. Uh, That that had healthy precedents in 19th century British history. And I can't help feeling I detect a a sense of optimism in the air. That, That may just be an illusion, but it feels different. It feels different. London feels more cheerful. Um, and I'm looking forward to spending the next academic year here as a visiting professor at, uh, at LSE. OK, final question. Uh, what are three things you've done wrong today? Well, probably agreeing to this interview would be one of them, wouldn't it? I mean, talk about walking into the lion's den. I can already see the headline. Imperialist fascist historian declares war on welfare state. So that would be number one. Number two was actually very early on, and that was uh, that I didn't actually go to bed until 3 a.m., having had an enjoyable evening uh, celebrating, uh, among other things, Germany's defeat in in the World Cup. And what about the third mistake? The third mistake was I didn't go for a run. I really, really, really should have gone for a run. I always feel a little bit guilty if I haven't had a run. So there's three. I could go on, because I usually shoot for five. And we haven't even got to, well, it's 20 past five. I mean, I've got a whole lot, load more time to make mistakes. I could get up to double figures at this rate. Neil Ferguson there, and his book, High Financier, is published by Alan Lane and is out now. Well, that's all for this week. My thanks to Sipliv Johal, Philip Inman, and Neil Ferguson. This podcast was produced by Phil Maynard. I'm Edith Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.